it says something. In this organization's more than 100-year history, uh, there has never been a woman director, just as there's never been a, a female secretary of defense. The fact that women are in that mix um, says a lot about how far we've come. Welcome back to Women Rule, the podcast. I'm Carrie Budoff-Brown, editor of Politico and host of Women Rule. In today's episode, we talked to women who held top positions in President George W. Bush's White House. We spoke with Fran Townsend, who served as Homeland Security Advisor to George W. Bush. Townsend's name is also being floated as a possible replacement for FBI Director James Comey. We also spoke with Candy Wolf, who was the assistant to President Bush for legislative affairs, and Julie Cram, a former deputy assistant to Bush and director of the Public Liaison Office. I asked Fran Townsend if she would accept the job of FBI director if offered. Um, she hedged, but my gut tells me that she would. Um, she confirmed that she's been approached, uh, that she is considering it. Uh, she seemed to have a good answer for the question of loyalty. She has been critical of President Trump. She signed a letter essentially saying that the president is unfit for office, that Trump, as a candidate last year during the primary, he was unfit for office. She had an answer saying, I was speaking about that in terms of national security. That was during the primary um, and pivoted to the fact that she has served both Republicans and Democrats, That, uh, but the, she, she would serve the Constitution. Stay tuned for that conversation. As always, if you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to Women Rule on iTunes, rate us, and leave a review. Feel free to share our episodes on social media, and please follow me on Twitter at Brown. Women Rule is produced by Politico in partnership with Google and the Tory Burch Foundation. Now, let's get to our conversation with Fran Townsend, Candy Wolf, and Julie Cram. So we're here with three women who served in very different roles in the Bush White House. Um, a good 10 years ago, you all left there? Just about. That's How right. does it feel to be 10 years removed from being in this White House, watching from the outside now, Fran? You know, I don't, I, I have to say, I don't miss being in the mix right in the middle of every crisis, every, you know, I, in some ways, my job was a little different because I had to deal with every single terror threat and the cyber threat was growing then. And that constant, it's sort of, you know, you hear the old uh, saying, it's like hitting yourself in the head with a hammer. You don't know how much it hurts till you stop. Um, you know, I, I, I like my privacy. I like my life. I love my children. And so I'm, I don't miss it. I, I, serving was an absolute privilege. And to have been there at that time doing what I did was a real, you felt like you really were yeah, contributing. Yeah. But I don't miss it. Yeah, Candy. You know, I, I've, I've interviewed other women who have just, Valerie Jarrett, who just left the White House. It was sort of a couple of literally weeks after she left. And I was like, you know, what What did you do? Like, how does it feel? Do you miss it? And she said, you know, I really don't. You know, there, there that was a finite period of my life. Um, when you look back on your experience, um, do you, do you f view it fondly? I mean, do you think, wow, that was sort of just a whirlwind? Um, or, you know, like, how do you situate that in your life? Like, how do you view that? Yeah, I mean, it, to me, it was yeah. like the best job of my life. Yeah. Um, and it really was because... What was the, it about it? it? It was the confluence of the type of issues that you had, being 
in a job where the decisions that you made and, and the issues you worked on impacted people's lives. I mean, you know, it was an honor and a privilege to serve. And there was an awe to be in the Oval Office and to have conversations and to know that you're making decisions uh, that really are having an impact. And so, you know, it was just I, – I, I look back, Andy Card, who was the chief of staff, you know, at the beginning part of the Bush administration, told everyone when we first came in that the hardest thing about the job you had was knowing when to leave. And I think um, – I look back – not around the departure, but then as the job became less of an honor and a privilege and more of a job, you sort of knew that was the time that you were that, tired. And, and what was that? What, what made that feeling come when it, when it became more of a job? What, what, what were you feeling like? I was exhausted. Yeah. I didn't have the creativity. Yeah. I felt like I wasn't offering my best. Yeah. And, you know, I feel like if you're in there, there's a limited period of time in which you're working. And, you know, the president deserved the best, and he deserved the best of, of me. And I was just, you know, at the point where, okay, how many times can I keep doing the same policy issue on the Hill? <laughs> right? <laughs> By the fourth yeah. resolution, I don't really have a, yeah. a great way to approach it anymore. Yeah. So um, I thought, you know, it's time. And then family kind of started to demand more. And I thought this is this is uh, appropriate for me to uh, recognize that it's the time. <laughs> you know, what's interesting that you all served in and Julie, you served in in the White House before Twitter, right? Yes. Before Twitter and social media. Um, could you have imagined being in your job with this cycle? Do you think about what it's like, what it would have been like then versus now? Um, and how you might have done your job differently? Or are you just sort of thankful that you were there before we had this like this insane sort of cycle that we're in, which I I came to Washington 10 years ago myself and, and just can't believe where we are today in terms of how quickly things move. Uh, I am thankful that um, I was not there during yeah. this particular <laughs> communication uh, age. Um, so my role, our job was kind of the sales and marketing yeah. um, of the president's policies, mm -hmm. both inside the Beltway and outside the Beltway. Um, so in that regard, having those additional communications channels to talk about policy and to actually reach people in a different way would probably have been beneficial, in particularly in certain times. Um, but having control over that and kind of it being kind of part of a larger, you know, policy, what was going on, I think that's the what is harder is that is kind of reacting. So what was it like? You know, there was a you know a really good story last. I don't know actually what you thought of it in the Washington Post last fall about women in the White House and how there were strategies for women in these sort of more male-dominated environments. I know the Bush White House was actually, you know, very, had a lot of senior women. Were there any specific strategies you did employ as women in the White House to, to sort of support each other, make sure your voices were heard, Fran? You know, it's funny. I don't recall that, right? Yeah. I mean, Harriet Myers had been White House counsel. Yeah. Margaret Spellings was in the domestic policy office. Um, Condi mm -hmm. was national security advisor in the first term. I was there. Candy was there. Julie. I never we never spoke to one another as how do the women feel yeah. and how do we sort of have our voices heard. That said, um, you know, I can remember Dana coming down to my office and talking to me about what she wanted to accomplish or could I help her and working together. Nicole mm -hmm. Wallace was there and I can remember she was the strategic communications mm -hmm. person. Um, and so we supported one another, but it it wasn't. I, I didn't think of it as yeah. a woman thing in particular. Mm -hmm. um, we were colleagues. Of course, there's a sisterhood, yeah. right? Um, but I don't think that's uh, 
I don't think that has a necessarily a professional, at least yeah. at the White House, it didn't. I never yeah. felt, no, I, think I, most I never of had it, any issues yep. like that at all. I think most of it was implicit yeah. because you're moving a mile a minute mm-hmm. and there's so much going on that, you know, in corporate world, you can stand back and there's whole strategies and there's way to bring talent forward and to really help mentor I don't think any of us had a whole lot of time. Although I would think about it uh, not so much from my level, where it was colleagues, versus really sorting support the, the talent and the younger kids that were coming up. And they were working really hard. And there I would be more cognizant of, you know, making sure that everybody was heard and diversity of folks at the table, uh, and, you know, and, and, and really kind of helping them find their way. So I think it was probably implicit on our part, but mm-hmm. I, I know I was much more explicit um, with some of the women who are coming along. That was true for me, too. I mean, and, and that that extended to when you'd have a policy discussion, you were able to bring subordinates into the room with the president, with the other assistants to the president, the most senior folks. And so I was conscious about trying to bring younger women and give them that exposure and that experience I, I don't know a, a human being, male or female, who their first exper- interaction with the president, they're not sort of unable to get a full sentence out. <laughs> and yeah. so everybody, you wanted to get that experience for as many people as you could. And I was I was especially sensitive to the fact that, especially in the security world, there are fewer women. And so making sure that the handful of women that I had to recruit women, to mentor them, to give them the opportunity to advance themselves was important. Was there ever any time, like you were in a meeting, Julie or, or Candy, where you were sitting there and, and uh you know, you you presented a solution or you thought of something um, that you think was informed by, you know, being the only woman in the room or one of only a few women in the room as you were working on legislative proposals on the Hill. Yeah, I don't know that I have a a specific example that says because I was a woman. I think where the challenges kind of came in, particularly on the legislative side, which, you know, 12, 13 years ago was still fairly male-dominated, right, around a lot of senior members of Congress who are male. I mean, now there's a significant number of women, and that's been sort of growing, but there weren't many women members of Congress, um, or as many as today, certainly. And I always saw the challenge. There was sort of early on kind of building the 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 grade, if you will. You know, I had to build the respect, and I had to earn it. And with, there was an added— With lawmakers? With lawmakers. Yeah. And How did you do that? Well— I would say to his credit, it was the president. Yeah. So there was a lot of criticism uh, sort of at the beginning, whether not when I first started, but kind of partway through, there was an evaluation of, you know, should people still stay in the positions they're in? There was some reshuffling going on. Uh, Andy Card uh, had said that he was stepping down. Josh Bolton was coming in. There was a reassessment. And so there were some members who were more critical because I wasn't the person who was going to go out every night and have dinners and do the networking because I wanted to be home when I could get home to see my children. And so you have those trade-offs, and it turned into where the president said, no, I want Candy to stay, and you have – I had his backing. And once you once I had that, then you're sort of empowered. And then it got harder. You could be you. I could be me, yeah. and I could just – you know, do what I needed to do and be able to respond to it. But 
um, you know, it was his it was his backing and his loyalty. So when you say I'm speaking on behalf of the president of the United States, I was speaking on behalf of the president of the United States. Okay, that's fairly powerful. (laughs) Um, But, you know, it took kind of getting to that point and the insecurity and the recognition that, you know, there's different approaches. Yeah. And mine was going to be more policy. Mm-hmm. Mine was going to be, On the here's substance. what the answers yep. and assumptions and how we're going to deal with the negotiations. And it wasn't going to be because I had, you know, super close relationships with, you know, various um, senior members of Congress. Mm-hmm. That wasn't what was going to carry the day. You know, I had a similar, I had a similar experience. So it was t- August of 2003. The president, President Bush, had had a not great meeting uh, with senior Saudi officials, including their foreign minister, who had left the Oval Office in something of a snit. And I got called in and the president and told that the president wanted me to go to Saudi Arabia. I had never been there. Um, and so I did a lot of preparation. And the one thing that came to me from every the State Department, the CIA, was that as a woman, the president sending me as a woman was going to, they were going to take, the Saudis would take as some sign of disrespect um, because women don't hold an equal position in Saudi society. And so I went to the president privately and I said to him, the issue in the bilateral relationship is too important. Maybe you should send someone else. And he asked me why. And I was quite honest that, you know, if, if as a woman they won't hear the message from me, then it's okay. I'll say it was my decision. And the president was really the only time I can remember him being quite abrupt with me um, and telling me, it didn't matter. And anyone who told me it did matter that I was a woman was wrong. That w- The only thing that would matter to the Saudis was that I was his envoy. I was carrying his message. And other than that, it wouldn't matter. And it wasn't up to me. It was up to him. Yeah. And I was yeah. going. <laughs> How did it turn out? It, well, I will tell you, I wound up to be the m- most senior and closest official over the next five years with the Saudi government um, and continued to go, even in the private sector, when I had left government on business, was able to go. Uh, And he was absolutely right. It didn't matter to the Saudis one bit that I was a woman. And in fact, in some ways, the prior, the king then, King Abdullah, used my visits. They would never photograph a woman and publish it in their newspapers. Um, He would be photographed, meeting with me. I was not covered because U.S. policy was a U.S. government official would not wear an abaya or a veil. And he would be photographed, and it would be in the newspaper of the king meeting with a Western woman unveiled. And while that doesn't sound like much here, it was quite a thing there. And so the president understood quite well how to use the fact in foreign policy that I was a woman to his advantage. Um, and I, it was interesting because I was remarkable. afraid it would yeah. be a detriment. You got the support of, of a boss there, right? Right. You said, you know, you're like no candy. different. Right. You're no different. Julie, did you and want to add something? Well, I was just going to say, mm-hmm. I think the White House is, is is a very structured environment. So you're able to bring your creativity. and But the, the senior uh, empowerment of mm-hmm. uh, of of the president, you know, of, of your boss is what really kind of, when you're sitting around, it had nothing to do with whether you're a male or a female. Mm-hmm. It's, what is your job? Are you doing a good job? And, and, uh, and, and getting it done and bringing mm-hmm. something to the table every time you yeah. came into the, when you came in. So, th- you know, th- this, this White House, it should be noted, just similar to the way the Obama White House was at the beginning and, and the Bush White House at the beginning, not many women, not a ton of women at the upper ranks of this current White House. Um, Fewer cabinet secretaries that are women as well than both Bush and Obama. What is missing in that when you have women absent from the West Wing sitting at the table around either national security, domestic policy? 
don't all speak at once either. <laughs> well, I'll just I'll put the um, I'll put a corporate hat on because it's a known fact that's been uh, recorded in many uh, publications that the more women around a board, uh, the better the result of a company. Uh, and it's both economic as well as as decision making. So you know, I think. Um, more women at the table and how we do approach issues and to think about approaches helps to add to the diversity of ideas and to ensure that there's different approaches that could be presented. And so I think when you just don't have, you know, a strong enough mix, you're missing out on, you know, a per- perhaps a different way of thinking about a problem or bringing some additional resources and some talent to the table. So I think it applies Corporate-wide, if you don't have folks at the board or at the senior management, and I think it's equally applicable within any administration. And I, and I will say, I, I think it's a, um, a, a bit of a wives' tale, but true in my own experience. And so I'll use myself as an example. Condi and I, when I got promoted, I originally started as Condi Rice's deputy. I was then an equal in terms of rank. I had the Homeland Security and Counterterrorism side. She remained National Security Advisor. But in my role, I had a lot of foreign responsibility, right? I was handling bilateral relationships around the world, but solely uh, focused on counterterrorism. She was entirely comfortable with that because it wasn't competitive in any way. She knew I would coordinate with her. I wasn't going to deal with filling the, the Saudis, for example, without talking to her about the broader foreign policy relationship. And it wasn't it didn't have that, you know, this is my turf versus your turf kind of feel to it. And I will say that in my own experience, women tend to be very focused when they're working together collaboratively, as we all did in the White House, on outcomes as opposed to process. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and that is not always the case in watching men work together where they're focused on both, right? It's not that they're not focused on outcomes, but and what, what do you mean by the outcomes versus process? You're saying that the the mechanisms of how you just talk. I mean, t- sure. walk me through that just a little bit more, and then Julie, I'll go to you. Well, what what I'm saying is, women's willingness to be collaborative, just, just to share, done. to share authority, mm-hmm. to share ideas, and <laughs> yeah. then to to share credit for the outcome. It's it's not the same sort of competitiveness that oftentimes I've seen among male colleagues about, no, no, that's mine, that's not yours, I'm going to do this, you shouldn't be doing that, that sort of scratchy competitiveness. Women tend to be less that way. They want to get to the outcome. They want to get to the, the goal. And we'll figure out who's going to do what, but that's less important. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, Julie? Before the White House, at the White House, and since the White House, um, I completely agree with you, Fran. You know, when we would go in and and from an execution perspective and a strategy perspective, you know, I would be the frequently one of the people that came in and said, okay, here's the agenda. How are we going to get this done? What's the action item? Great. Break. Go. And then come back. And, and so there was a real – whether it was the red teams or uh, other – What are the red teams? Oh, they're, they're multi-agency Got it. group meetings mm-hmm. where you're, you know, yeah. look, seeking a, a higher policy outcome. Yeah. Um, and and it's got to be very organized and, and, and strategic and how do you pull the levers. But I think it's frequently – it is the women who are able to kind of keep the ball moving and not take – care about so much about the credit. Yeah. Um, and and uh, I think that's a 
that is, that's not something that will be shocking to the listeners um, if you're a woman. But and it's not it's not a rocket science, but it's it, but it does it helps move I the ball forward. Pick up on something that Candy said um, about Candy. You said about networking or the pressure of the social aspect of of working in Washington. The idea that. To get ahead, like you need to go out to drinks or you just sort of need to be present in, in these places outside work hours. I struggled with that myself over the years. Like I have to be home with my child and I don't want to – I just don't want to do some of this stuff. And I also sometimes feel awkward doing it. Like I sometimes think I sound a little bit like Mike Pence in a way. But I do find it <laughs> – like his whole thing, how he doesn't go out to dinner with women – well, like, I was always, like, uncomfortable, like, doing, like, the mail sourcing thing at night. Like, it's just odd, right? And I always sometimes feel like I was at a little bit of a disadvantage because I wasn't a big drinker. And I'm, like, I just want myself to be judged by my stories. Um, Candy, you, I think I read something where you once said that the, the rules on lobbying has actually helped because it's now, like you just said, it's based on what you know, not sort of who you schmooze. So, like, that would seem to be, like, a benefit now for for. Maybe something that obviously men don't – some men don't like doing that too. But I think to disproportionately probably helps women, no? It does. I've always yeah. thought that the shifting – I mean it's been yeah. over time. Yeah. You know, I think it's since the oh, – gosh, my ages of being on the hill since like – I think it was the gift rules that first went into place on 93-94. And, um, and then it changed so that it became more their fundraisers yeah. than they were dinners that could be paid for, you know, by – downtown in K Street. And so with that shifting, yes, you'll go to a a few fundraisers, but for the most part, you're really in on the policy a lot more. And then I think, you know, so so they became group activities, right? If a member, if if you wanted to have an opportunity or still want to have an opportunity to meet with certain members of Congress, then you tend to go to a fundraiser of which there's, you know, 25 of your uh, colleagues as well. And so it becomes this group, uh, you know, dialogue. Um, so it's really has shifted away from being a more of a one-on-one or an obligation to have smaller events. And, you know, that's kind of balanced it out. And, and now it's a lot more around policy. So how do you how do you do your sort of networking now? Is it where do you like when you need to take out you know, Julia client? What is your preferred method of operation? I still think from a, obviously the lobbying perspective, there's the fundraising, but there's all kinds of I, – I do think that the social aspect of Washington is a part of your job, yeah. um, and it is hard to juggle. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, particularly if you're in an agency environment, um, you know, we run a public affairs firm, so we do want to have – we part of our job is knowing and talking and um, in addition to the substance, there's a networking element, and that is hard to juggle. Um, and um, I think you just have to be clear. You've got to, you know, set your time frame and it's 8 o'clock or 7.30 or 6 o'clock, 6.30, whatever it is. It never works for me. I'm never good with the hard out. It does not work. It is. It's difficult. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. I've gotten, I think, because there's a, I have an international side to it. So there tends to be a lot more dinners and, and things that, and some of them go quite late depending on what part of the world we're talking about. Uh, so I look at my calendar and two Maybe I'll add a third or see if I can do it as a breakfast, and I just cut it off. It's it, it's not every night. Um, I can't sustain, you know, every evening. And I think there are some people, and I think maybe some of the younger folks can do more of that, and part of that is the benefit of 
kind of getting to a point yeah. in your career where you can exactly. figure out how to yep. balance. But it, it's a struggle. I think you're going to you know, constantly have to go through and find that what, right What balance. advice have you given, Fran, to, to young women? Um, you know, young women in Washington now or really any place. Like what was the one lesson you wish you, you would have known when you were, I don't know, 30 or even, you know, yeah. 20 or 40? So I learned it along the way, right? I think oftentimes women feel like I have to do it all myself. I can't, mm-hmm. you know, if you listen to what Candy just said, it was about as she got more senior in her career, you could delegate some of this. Well, guess what? You need to learn to delegate and share responsibilities the whole way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it gets easier the more senior you get. Um, but I will tell you, I've had this, so I have two children. Um, they're now grown, right? One is 22 and one is 15. But I have had the same. For the audience, if they're following, that makes Fran when she was, they were very young kids when you were in government. Two and eight when I Mm -hmm. I joined the White House. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I could not have done it had I not had the same nanny. And before I went to the White House, I spoke to her that I would have less control over my schedule. Um, And that meant a burden on everyone, right? So when I decided I was going to do the job at the White House, Everybody was going to have to pick up slack. Mm-hmm. Everybody from, at the time, my mother and my husband to the nanny and everybody, this was going to be a team sport. And so it was so much a team sport that when I left the White House and you go in, you go in to see the president in the Oval Office and have your picture taken. And, you, and it, there's a strict rule. You can only bring your immediate family. And I can remember going to Josh Bolton, who was the chief of staff at the time, and said, I'm, I can't do this unless I can bring the nanny because I could not have done the job. Yeah. And the, the great part of that story was the nanny was thrilled, um, but what, who she really wanted to see was Condi because oh, yeah. she's from Jamaica. <laughs> she's an African-American female, and the person she really wanted to yeah, see was Condi. Yeah. So I had to get her a picture with Condi. Condi for president. <laughs> right. That's great. How about you, Candy? What's like the one thing that you wish you, know, you would have known when you were 25, 30, 35, you know, when you were sort of coming up in Washington? Uh, you know, the the advice I've taken and, and I think um, sort of learned later on is um, to take the risks and opportunities when they're presented to you. And I think particularly true for women who tend – we tend to be a little bit more um, uh, apprehensive about leaning into uh, mm-hmm. a new job or a new opportunity – and certainly, as things were moving along, I would hesitate, and you'd, you'd question yourself. And so as I got more confident, and to try to understand that confidence, then I could lean in more and be willing to take risks and opportunities and, and realize mm-hmm. that the job, the next opportunity, or the, or the um, go be head of legislative affairs at the White House, I've wanted to do that forever and ever and ever. But when you actually get it, you realize... Wow, this is hard. Do you, do you have that fear of failure? Is you that, have the fear. Yeah, yeah right? you have the fear of failure. Why? I'm not going to do it. Cause I'll I'm fail not going to do it. And it'll be this really right. public thing, right? right? Like when you when you three women fail, like right. it's written about. It kind of sucks. I can yeah. imagine, right? Right. Yeah, Julie. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go back to the you know what what was the thing that I wish I knew when I was 20, yeah. um, and I think it plays along what Candy was saying, which is follow your own instincts yeah. um, and listen to yourself and. Take those risks and 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 do your best not to doubt yourself, mm-hmm. um, because ninety. I find ninety percent of the time you're sitting around the table, and it's sometimes, many times, it's the guy who mm-hmm. asked the question that you've been deliberating five minutes ago. 
Um, it's it's be confident, trust your instincts, and and continue to learn how to how to act on that more quickly. And how did how did the three of you push through that that fear of the fear of failure I just mentioned, which is you know questioning whether you can take something on? Like what what would you do? No, I, I can remember that first morning driving through the gates. One, I was sure that they would not have my name on the list <laughs> getting onto West Exec Drive, and the gates would never open. Then they opened, and I can remember pulling forward and watching them close, and I could feel the anxiety. I thought, mm-hmm. Oh my God, I got in. <laughs> what if I can't do it? Mm-hmm. And I, I've always believe that you can't be afraid to ask for help. I, I think it comes back to, you know, we always think we have to do things ourselves. Um, and the, the the most reassuring thing to me was there was no one in the White House, if I asked a question or I asked for help, that didn't, they didn't even hesitate. Absolutely, what do you need me to do? And in a crisis, you know, for me, anytime I went to somebody, it was a national and sometimes international crisis where people were going to die if we didn't get it done. And so if in the midst of that crisis, I needed to do notifications on the Hill and I called Candy at home at some ungodly hour and said, oh, my God, I don't have time to do all this. Can you help me? The answer is absolutely. And I can remember the communicators and oftentimes understand because I was dealing in a classified world, you could you could appreciate they might be irritated with me because I could see this coming over a period of time. And it wasn't until the crisis was manifest in public that all of a sudden they were getting calls at weird hours, the lead, the, the, lawmakers, people, yeah, lo- the lawmakers, yeah. uh-huh. the press. And all of a sudden I was calling in colleagues that would feel like, why didn't I know about this a week ago? Well, because it was classified and we were trying to resolve it. Um, and then come to them and say, gosh, I really need your help and I need it now. Mm -hmm. And not once did anybody ever hesitate or not say, absolutely, I'm on my way. What do you need? So um, as Republicans in this town, what uh, what is your view of, of, um, you know, watching from the outside of Republican administration? It's the first time since, I guess, 2005, 2007, you've had Republican in the White House, Republican control of Congress. Candy, there hasn't been much to show yet for this administration 100 plus days in. Um, what's that feel like as, as someone who, you know, 100 days ago had this great opportunity, still have it, of course, someone who worked on the Hill? What, how, how, does, how does the president push through this, this period where obviously there's lots going on, as we all know? You know, I think one, one thing to note is that, the, as we all know, 100 days is somewhat arbitrary. <laughs> and I do think for most administrations, and I would say this for Bush as well, that there's a few things that were more in the pipeline earlier because there were things that he had campaigned on that were very clear and were policy generated in a decision to quickly act on those. When you don't have a pipeline of of um, policy issues that have been fully formulated, then it takes longer to get the formulation and to kind of get moving on it. So I, I think in certain instances, you know, things will take longer. Um, and the personnel decisions are taking a while, which is also slowing uh, the, the apparatus. So, you know, I, I think it's going to be important to find a few of these key issues and really begin to kind of to drive the outcome, to begin to put a real communications, legislative, policy strategy around them and, and try to have a singular focus, if you will, on a, on a few things that can begin to drive outcome. Because um, you the only way you start to move the pieces 
and to get the result is to begin to to drive towards one objective. And, you know, it's hard in a very noisy environment to be able to get the focus and say, okay, tax reform, these are the principles, this is what we're going to be for, start to, you know, advocate on those principles, begin to do the grassroots outreach to the voter and see Mm -hmm. if you can begin to push out a message that starts to coalesce the lawmakers and begin to focus attention on a strategy. And how hard do you imagine that's going to be now that there's a an investigation going on um, by a special prosecutor. Uh, Julie, you know, how hard is it to stay focused when you have this kind of noise coming from outside the West Wing? Uh, Going back to the grassroots, you know, it's going to be at the end of the day, what does the voter feel about it? And are Mm -hmm. they paying attention? Um, So uh, I completely agree with Candy in that getting the, uh, the president and his team staying focused on the outcomes um, is the only way that they're going to be able to, to achieve. Um, And, and, uh, and, and I think they will. And it's still very early on. I mean, I started in 2007 and it was, and it was, there is nothing to describe the type of environment that everyone is working in right now. So, and they need, they do need to get some more people and to help push that policy through. So I think that'll get, that's going to start to, to shake out too, I think. And I think we've got to put this in perspective, right? I mean, the, what makes the the special counsel that you mentioned different is how early it came. But by the way, this is a, a, a fixture in Washington. We were in we were in the White House when Pat Fitzgerald was the special prosecutor investigating Scooter. Well, I guess it was the leak of the Valerie Plamley, correct? Right? So that that and, and there was the, the yeah. Bill Clinton, right? Mm-hmm. The Monica yeah, Lewinsky, Ken Starr, right? So th- <laughs> it's not just me, yeah. right? Washington. This yeah. is. This just comes sooner in this administration than it came in those. But this is not, regrettably, so uncommon in Washington. And so they're going to have to, just as we did when we were in the White House, they are going to have to sort of compartmentalize that, put it aside. But you do, because you don't, you know what, unlike, this is, you shouldn't take this personally, unlike the press, Mm -hmm. you actually have a job, another job, a very serious job to do. You had it before the crisis of the special counsel, you have it after. And you don't have the luxury of saying, well, I'm not going to get to homeland security or foreign policy. You have to do the full-time mm-hmm. job the president was elected to do, and you deal with this too. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, it, it can be distracting, but you learn to compartmentalize and get the get the job of the people, the American people, done. So, Fran, when I was researching you, I, I ran across a, a Washington Post profile of you from 2005 by my predecessor, Susan Glasser, and Peter Baker, which uh, was quoted, Robert Mueller was quoted in the story. Yes. Lots of worlds colliding at once. Uh, said you were renowned for your, you were a detail freak, and you were an accumulator of facts. Now, what would you say about Robert Mueller as he embarks on this? What does Trump have to know about him? I would that quote could just as easily have come from me about Bob Mueller. Yeah. Um, I can remember agents saying so. The battle rhythm of the White House was such that we had a daily terrorism brief, which meant very early in the morning after the senior staff meeting that Candy mentioned. Um, and so Mueller would get in like at six o'clock in the morning, and he would get his brief, and the agents would be lined up outside his conference room to brief him. And they used to be terrified because Bob had the ability to go down a level of detail with them to the point where they would have to confess they didn't know they'd have to get back to him. And so he is very fact-oriented, very detail-oriented, and 
the reason he recognized that in me was because we were very similar in that way. Um, look, he was always a fabulous investigator. And if we were working on a threat to disrupt a threat, I had no doubt in my mind, I was totally confident that with Bob focused on it, nothing would fall through the cracks. Um, and so that I didn't have to focus necessarily on what the FBI was doing. I was focused on the interagency and making sure all the gears of the interagency process were meshed and working together. Um, he is a superb investigator. So and what can we expect from him? I, I think you should, you know, it's funny. Before he was appointed, I said to someone very senior in the administration that if Bob Mueller walked down the street, having been the longest serving FBI director 12 years, uh, other than J. Edgar Hoover, most Washingtonians would not recognize mm-hmm. him. And that tells you something. I yeah. don't think you and the press ought to expect to hear a whole lot from him mm-hmm. while he's conducting the investigation. He will not tolerate leaks on his investigation. What happens if you leak under Robert Mueller? You get fired. Yeah. I mean, that if you don't get indicted, you get fired. <laughs> um, he will not tolerate it. And the agents know that. Um, and they respect him. And so I think they won't. I think they feel confident that he will follow the facts wherever they take him. So, uh, and I don't think he's not going to, this is not going to linger. I mean, he when he is focused on something, he's he is sort of very Jack Webb. That's mm-hmm. That dates me, I suppose. <laughs> um, but he is very factual and very detail-oriented. And so I think what you, will ex- you should expect to see is he will move along with all deliberate speed, he all, but he won't want any interference. And by the way, that's, I don't, not, that's not a reference to the White House. Mm-hmm. He won't want interference from the press. He won't want it from Capitol Hill. And he will demand sort of people stay out of his way and let him get about, uh, get about it. So as you know, your name has been mentioned in the mix to be an FBI director. Mm -hmm. The next one. Have you been approached? You know, it's so I think I, I, along with several others, have been approached. What I think um, what strikes me about it. So you have been approached by the White House. And and so I've talked to folks in the administration about it. um, And I think, you know, it it says something in this organization's more than 100-year history there has never been a woman director, just as there's never been a, a female secretary of defense. The notion that you would have, and I, by the way, I was not the only woman. Alice Fisher, who had been the, the assistant attorney general of the criminal division in the Department of Justice under Attorney General John Ashcroft, was also spoken to. And so the fact that women are in that mix um, says a lot about how far we've come. That hasn't been true before. Uh, and so I think regardless of whatever decisions made, we have begun to shatter a glass ceiling about what is the population of people who are qualified uh, and competitive to hold such a position? What does that look like? And I think that pool of candidates looks different today than it looked, you know, a month ago. So just to reprise some questions from earlier, like what would a woman bring to that job that, that is additive, that's unique? So, well, but in some ways, the fact that a woman could do that job just as well as a man could do it, um, and perhaps better, uh, is what different. What skills would you bring to it that a man wouldn't? So, uh, you know, it's funny. You mentioned the Bob Mueller quote. I think that our backgrounds as pro- long, you know, decades of experience as prosecutors and investigators um, – I think we haven't had pools of candidates that included women that came that that would be yeah. equally competitive. And so I actually don't focus on what I bring that's different. I think the history making part is 
I, Alice Fisher, bring the mm-hmm. same skills as someone as respected and admired as Bob Mueller brings to, brought to that job. There are women who've got those skills and are equally competitive. Would you accept the job if it was offered? Well, you know what? I, I still, I learned in the White House, I don't do hypotheticals. So I will, but I will say, I was quite honored and quite flattered to be approached and to be spoken to about it and have the opportunity to talk about what I think is important in the Justice Department, about the rule of law, um, about the importance of the independence of the FBI. And so I was quite privileged to have the opportunity to speak about those issues. If the, if, you know, as been reported as if, if the president had, had asked you the same questions that he asked Comey, how would you have reacted? So, I, look, I, we don't know whether or not the president asked Jim Comey that. We know we only know what's been reported, right, mm-hmm. from sources who mostly have remained anonymous. Um, and so I, I, I take all of that with a grain of salt. I will tell you that I think there's not anybody who would serve as the FBI director that wouldn't tell you that this is about you take an oath of office and the oath of office we all took it when we were sworn in is to support and defend the constitution of the united states against all enemies foreign and domestic as you can tell i've taken this oath a number of times <laughs> over the course of my career and the fact is your loyalty when you take that oath you swear um under oath to that and so that's really what your loyalty is your your what's required of you is a loyalty to uphold that oath and that's the right answer, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I was actually sort of surprised that you've been Nate. You've been not surprised because you're not eminently qualified, right? But you you were pretty critical of the president last year. You signed that letter that he's used to not hire certain people. How do you get around that? Look, I don't. I don't think it's a matter of getting around it. Um, I mean, has your mind changed about him? Look, I think that there there were a number of letters, right, at different yeah. points during the presidential campaign. One, I mean, I think I should start by telling you, I'm not a, I've never been a political person. I've worked for Democrats and Republicans. Right. I mean, at wildly different ends of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. So on the Democratic end, really liberal folks like Elizabeth Holtzman when she was DA and Janet Reno when she was attorney general to folks- Holtzman in New York, right? Holtzman Bro- in New York, yeah. right, Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Um, to folks like George W. Bush, Rudy Giuliani when he was U.S. attorney. I mean, it, so I've worked across mm-hmm. a spectrum. Again, I come back to the oath because it didn't matter to me who the boss was. I had a job to do. Um, and I think in some ways, while I'm a registered Republican and those are the principles that best um, capture who I believe, what I believe in, um, I think that during a primary is different than during a general election. And so I signed a letter at the end of March, very early in the primary, the formal primary process. Um, and this was a letter that was basically said he was unfit for office now. And there were other letters in August, mm-hmm. and I think there was one later than that. Um, and I did not, I had the opportunity to sign all of them mm-hmm. and did not. Part of that was my rec- my own recognition about my area of expertise. And it's not politics, Mm -hmm. right? I have some feelings on national security issues, which I feel like I know a fair bit about. That first letter you mentioned was in the during the primary, which is kind of inside the Republican family fight. um, And it was focused on national security. And so I felt like I had something to contribute there. Once it got beyond that, I'm not a political person. Mm -hmm. I wasn't sure that I was best suited to, to opine. And so I chose not to participate in the political process. And look, it's not a secret. Certainly they knew that when they invited me to come in. 
if that was an issue for them. And I think it's a better, it's a question better suited to them, right? Yeah. I don't have to overcome it. They invited me in. And yeah. so they obviously didn't think and it was an issue. And this is the issue. second time I've, people were also rumored for DHS as well, Department of Homeland Security. And DNI. And so I've yeah. been to Trump, I've been invited into Trump Tower. Always the bridesmaid, never yeah. the bride. Well, I want to end, I, I would love for you each to provide like one like kernel of, uh, of advice for the, for the current White House uh, people there. What, what would you tell them about the experience they have, what they should remember? It's, so I guess I'll go first. You, you will be there for what, looking back, I mean, I was there for five years, and looking back on it now, it's the, it was the blink of an eye. It was the highlight and privilege of a career. And the time, while every day seems endless when you're in the midst of this fight, in retrospect, looking back over the course of your life, it will be the highlight, whatever yeah. role you're playing. And so you have to make every single minute count. And the, the moment you are sitting at your desk or you're in one of these jobs and you are not awestruck by the yeah. privilege and honor of mm-hmm. being there, you should, you should yeah. leave. Mm-hmm. Kind of reminds me of the early weeks of having a baby. Yeah. It's terrible yeah. when you're doing it. Then you're like, that was the greatest time First ever. First three months are the yeah. hardest yeah. part yeah. of having yeah. the child. Exactly. Which is where they are right yeah. now. Yeah. They're not sleeping. <laughs> yes. They're kind of crying. Yeah. Your lack of sleep. Um, uh-huh. So try to get some sleep yeah. when you can. Remember that it's a marathon, not a sprint. Uh-huh. So... Uh, there are long days, but to try to find some balance because it will help keep your sanity and then enjoy what you can of it because it really is uh, an amazing experience when you can step out and not be in the center of the storm, so to speak. Julie? Uh, on the personal side, I echo mm-hmm. what my former colleagues are saying. Um, it is the it is incredible. When you drive through and you park on West Exec or anywhere on the compound and go through those gates every morning – it is an incredible experience. Mm-hmm. Um, for the gals out there, dress like girls. Don't need to dress like the boys. Uh, wear high heels. Wear that? high heels. Interesting. You're, wear the sec- pink. you're the second guest um, I've had who's given advice about that. That's interesting. Uh, why, why do you say that? Um, I, think, I think we all feel better when we look better. Hmm. Um, and um, depend. It's, it's all about who your personality yeah. is. Um, but, but I think dressing like a girl is a good thing. You don't need to dress like the boys. Um, and then on the on the work side, on the professional side, work the process. Mm. There is a defined policy making process. There is a strategy. There is a there to get this done, and enjoy that part of it too. Mm-hmm. There's the awe of it, but there's also the process piece that is interesting and exciting and um, and frankly important for the American people. Good. Well, Julie, Candy, and Fran, thank you so much. Fran, I'll be waiting for you now.